This episode was originally a live stream on YouTube. You could find out about all my content and how to follow and support me at erichunley.com. I hope to hear from you. And now, on with the show. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. All right, we are live. And today we have a special guest, Christina Babin. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Yes. Yeah, Christina how, Babin. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you, Eric? I'm doing fine. Now, I want to introduce you to everyone. Christina reached out to me with um, a very interesting story. Obviously, I do talk to cult experts and I've talked to somebody in Scientology, things like that. And Christina has a story. You have a story. And I'm very interested in it, but it did actually give me pause when I when I read the email and I, I spoke to I spoke to you on Friday about this. And I, I wanted I actually talked to my audience on Friday beforehand too in another live stream. But one of my concerns, and I want to get it out here too, is this. I guess I'll just call them a cult. I don't know. You know, that, that's a legal loaded term technically, but this uh, organization that we will refer to as a cult because it's allegedly a cult is quite troubling. There's some incredibly dark, dark stuff here. Yes. And out of respect for you, it, it can get really salacious. Now there are to me, your standard fair cults that like to scam people out of some money and things, which are horrible and all of that. But I am almost more comfortable with that in some ways than a lot of what has gone on in this cult. So I, I want to be very careful to not re-victimize you from being in there. I appreciate that. I appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate what you're saying because um, one of the reasons that I am speaking out is because it is such a salacious story and there is, there's a lot of stigma around survivors of this cult. Um, it's, we're kind of the dirty little secret of the world. You know, we, we were failed by, you know, social services and by, you know, America, by the FBI, by the CIA, you know, they failed us. And um, our story makes people very uncomfortable. It's not, it's not a fun cult. And, you know, we say sex cult and there's this idea that people have that like, you know, if you're going to make a Hollywood movie of a sex cult, there's orgies everywhere and beautiful women running around and parties. And it wasn't like that. It wasn't, there was nothing truly glamorous about it. And it's uncomfortable for people to talk about, but I feel it's necessary to talk about this subject and to talk about our story. I think it's worth telling and if we don't, we're kind of in danger of like revisiting this again with other groups. So it's a difficult subject, but I think it has to be talked about. Okay. And also to let everybody know, I'm not even, I'm not monetizing this video. Um, if you want to do super chats, that's fine. I appreciate it. I don't know if I'll be able to get to it timing wise or, or whatever. I do not want to interrupt the flow of the story. And I want to give Christina as much space as humanly possible. I, I feel like, Christina, you're, you're in a unique position. Or not unique, but 
an unusual position in the sense that you were in essence born into it. I consider one years old, you, you yeah. were not cognizant enough to make any kind of choice no. or have any knowledge. So that is a different stance than what we often see, which is somebody who gets recruited into it and, and has a living. And everybody is a victim. No question. I just, I think that the different perspectives are interesting and I'm very curious what life was like for you because you had no, nothing with uh, which you could compare. Yeah, it, it really is. Uh, I liken it to being an alien from a, another galaxy. All of the fundamental things that kids in society grow up in, even within co different cultures and different countries, for us didn't exist. So uh, nuclear families were discouraged. Uh, kids were taken away from their parents. If you lived with your parents, they, you know, you were told, don't give them special treatment. Everybody here is your parent. Um, it, the lines between parents and lovers and uncles and aunties and everything was mixed. It was all jumbled up. And so coming out into the world, it's like, it's, it's a totally different environment. And you literally have to learn how to think for the first time in your life when you leave this group or, or groups like it. Um, making decisions is so, so difficult. Um, I'm far along in my recovery, but I still, you know, if when, I'm under a lot of stress, sometimes it's difficult to like, think, what do I want to do? When did you leave? Right I was here. around 21. And that was... I, I don't want to age you out, but I, I was just going to ask you what year you left, not, not how old you were. So sorry, I messed that up. But uh, no, no, that's okay. Uh, I'm I'm 47 now, so yay, I'm an adult. Okay. <laughs> um, so I believe it was uh, 1997, perhaps. Okay. Um, okay. around that time, um, my, or maybe it was. It might have been around 96, 96, 97. Okay, so it was and, after Burke um, had passed away in 94. Yes, yes. And, um, you know, one thing about this group is that there were, uh, I, I kind of liken it to different, like, decades. The cult would change. And so there were, after David Berg passed away, the group changed again, changed its name, changed its policies, changed a lot of its doctrines. Uh, so you have people that have been in it from the beginning all the way to now, there were people that were in it for, you know, 10 years and then the next 20 years. And so a lot of people are coming out now. And so you're hearing a lot of different stories. Some of the younger generation, like my younger siblings, they didn't experience a lot of the things that we, uh, I, I say, we're, we were the guinea pigs, us older ones. Um, when David Berg was alive, things were really, really bad. And um, Karen Zerby was part of that and she promoted it. But once he passed away, she tried to have the group become a lot more legit and uh, a little less salacious. Okay. Now, so. so let's go back in time just to, um, you know, with that detail, what, what was your childhood like? I mean, you know, I, from my understanding, you didn't really go to school. So what was it like growing up as a little kid? Yeah. So there uh, really was like, no such thing as like a childhood. You, um, we read and studied with the adults. We worked with the adults. We worked 
to raise money and to take care of our siblings and the younger kids. Uh, so you did a full day of work. Uh, you got up in the morning, you prayed, you spoke in tongues, we chanted, uh, you were assigned your duties. And if you were cute and really social, then you were one of the kids that got sent out to beg on the streets. Uh, hey, what is speaking in tongues? I, I, I want to back up. I, oh. I've always heard the term, you know, um, Pentecostal. <laughs> you know, for, for some people, what exactly is So that? it actually is, uh, it's kind of part of a mind control or a thought reform tactic uh, to get people to chant because chanting kind of, um, I don't know the neurological uh, reasons for it, but it can actually help you breathe heavy and you basically go into a different altered state. And so it makes you more pliable. So you'll actually find a lot of cults that do some form of chanting. Our form of chanting was mostly speaking in tongues, uh, which is just a made up language. And each person had a different one and they had the same one. And so as you got to know people, you could, you could actually kind of recognize like, Oh, that's uncle Sammy, you know, Oh, that's how auntie Sharon talks in tongues. And it, you just made up your own. And it was just, and you just go on and on and on <laughs> for hours. And, you know, you kneel on the floor. It was a public activity. You all did it together. You were all required to do it. Um, we did a lot of that. That was like morning and night uh, group activity. So hmm. now, what, what was your mindset? I, I'm, I'm curious, and this, I hate to dig into every little detail. Dig, dig. <laughs> when you're speaking in tongues, are you are you kind of like just plain? When I mean, when you're a child, I'm 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 thinking it might actually be kind of fun. So I, so, I don't know. Yeah, actually, um, that's kind of a good point. Um, so we weren't allowed to think or daydream. If we were mm -hmm. walking around, we had like little books with scriptures that we had to be reading. Uh, if you got caught like looking out at the window, you were like, what's going on? What are you thinking about? Are you praying? You know, and then if you admitted to thinking about something, then you were in trouble. So you had to keep your mind shut off. So for me, and I'm sure everybody gets a little different, but prayer time was daydream time. So uh, there was so much repetition that even people's prayers were repetitive to me. I was like, oh, I know what Auntie Sharon's going to pray about. I know what verse they're going to say. So I already had my script memorized. You'd have to go in a circle, you know, once the chanting was done and prophesy. So I had, I usually, for me, I just quoted Bible verses and that was my prophecy. But yeah, that was a time to daydream and think about things and imagine places I might go or things I might do. Uh, and what yeah. were you imagining? Uh, not, probably not what normal kids did, but just maybe having a dress or walking outside. Uh, nothing major. I mean, nothing... It, you didn't think about things of going like to an amusement park or, but little things like, Oh, maybe, maybe I'll get to go outside today. Or maybe when I'm out on the street, somebody will give me some candy and you kind of relive memories that you had or experiences that you might've had while you were out begging. 
uh, and you kind of hold on to those and you cherish them, you know, because somebody passed you a little piece of candy, which was completely illegal and you get in trouble if you were caught. But little things would happen. Now, did they work with you? Like one thing I've found, like um, when discussing other organizations, there's a snitching culture. Yes. So you mentioned like somebody might give you a candy. Did you have to keep this a secret yourself because your your peers would snitch on you? And did you find yourself having to snitch as well? I tried really hard not to snitch. I hated snitching, but it was part of our, not only our culture, but it was required. You had to confess every night. You had to snitch on yourself as well as other people. You had to report back what you did that day, who you talked to, conversations, uh, and that was ev- that was nightly. Uh, did you plan this out? I'm, I'm I'm curious on that because now it's like I'm just trying to think of myself oh, in that position. So if oh I, yes, I know, planned I it out. Like, okay, but, so you said, oh oh, here's a good snitch thing. This will get yes. me only in so much trouble. So you would kind of find yes because you had to give them enough dirty yes. or enough information, but not enough yes. to be really problem. Yes, but I wasn't. I don't think I was the normal kid. Um, for some reason I was very observant and, um, well, I never, I never really disbelieved what they were telling me about the outside world. I saw that there was a game being played and I decided to play it. Um, and, uh, so for me, it was very easy to strategize, you know, how do I not get in trouble? Uh, I figured out pretty early you could not not confess. You had to confess. So the trick was how do you confess just enough to where they go that, but you're not locked in a closet or isolated or beaten or. Would they uh, do that? Oh yes. Yes. Uh, Physical punishment and um, isolation um, was very common. Yeah. Yeah. The punishments were very harsh. Did you have any friends who suffered more than others through? Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, I watched the kids that first of all, really truly believed and trusted the adults got it the worst. Um, The kids who had the biggest personalities got it the worst. So I actually Mm -hmm. have a big personality and did, but I worked very hard to suppress it. And very hard to show, not to show it. Uh, I did not trust anybody, so I got in less trouble. Whereas they would say something to somebody else or wish out loud, like, oh, I wish I could go skating like those kids over there. You know, so I would try very hard never to say that kind of stuff because you're not allowed to wish or want anything other than what you're doing. And where was your mother during this? Now, I know you were kind of passed around, from my understand, all the kids are, sort of. But where were, was your direct family? So when the cold first started, children kind of lived with their parents in, in communes. Uh, sometimes you'd travel in between a commune and just be with your family while you're working to get to the next commune. Uh, in the, I think it was the 80s. They started doing uh, taking the kids away from the parents and like having them. They started with like having them sleep in separate rooms um, where all of the nine and 10 year olds were together all the time. And all the, you know, toddlers were together. All the babies were together. You know, you couldn't 
you didn't take care of your own children. And then the older a kid got, then they would start sending them to different communes. So I lived predominantly with my parents when I was little. And then between 11 and 12, I got shipped off to a training camp and then with my older brother. So they, it was actually very cleverly done. They had these specialized training camps that were supposed to be fun and exciting. And we were supposed to like, since we were, yeah, yeah. And, and since they were very honest about that, they wanted us to give our lives to the cult of our own volition. They wanted us to dedicate ourselves to it. So this was our chance to show I'm an adult now. I'm going to give my life to God, just like my parents did. So there was a lot of similarities with maybe other religious camps, except it was very, very strict and um, nothing horrific, just a lot of indoctrination, a lot of thought reform um, was hammered into us in these camps. And then this was hundreds and hundreds of kids in these camps. There were, I think four of them around the world. So then all of those kids that went to the camps, they sent them out to other communes and did not send them back to their parents. So then at that point, we were just trafficked around the world, sent from commune to commune uh, to be used. I'm going to interrupt for a second. And uh, the chat's going crazy. Like, what is this? What's going on? <laughs> you know, like, this is the children of God cult. It is also known as or became the Family International, which is beyond creepy because Charles Manson had the family too. And yes, this is the same organization that had River and Joaquin Phoenix and Rose mm -hmm. McGowan within. So yes. just so everybody in the chat knows, I'm I'm wanting to know definitely and to go back. Um. So tell me about your camp, your, your training camp. Like, I mean, you show up one day. What, what happened? What was it like? Yeah. Okay. So, so there were two kinds of camps. So one was the one I'm talking about. Later on, we're going to get into what I call the prison camps. So they, they had this one idea. It kind of worked for a couple of years. We started rebelling again, and then they sent us to more intense ones. So the first one um, I don't know if you've read like uh, Robert Lipton's book, Lipton. Uh, um, uh, it's thought yeah, reform and the psychology yeah, of totalism right. or yeah. totalism. Yeah, it's, it's out of North Korea. I know that. Yes, I, I yes. haven't read his book, but I know, know the material through Rick Allen Ross and everyone. Yes. So he studied uh, POWs, uh, Korean that were Americans that were held in Korea and kind mm -hmm. of focused on mind control. So he kind of listed out like eight things that, uh, thought reform programs have in them. And I really found them like spot on. And for somebody like, it's amazing to me, somebody who didn't live it actually was able to kind of comprehend it. I think he was a genius. Um, but like the first one is the first one of the eight is the milieu of control. And mm -hmm. which means your like your surroundings. And so all cults do this. They control your surroundings. They control where you go, who comes in and out of it. Uh, and then it escalates to what information comes in. So this camp was all about, you know, controlling our environment and not giving us anything to think about except for the cult doctrine. Every single day we woke up to uh, an anthem that was played. 
And it was an anthem of dedication, dedicating our hearts, dedicating our lives. Are you willing to die for Jesus? And so that was played every morning when we woke up. We marched in rows. Uh, we sang, we, you know, we sang and we danced around fires and we like really bonded with everyone. So you're not allowed to have friends, but you can bond, you can hug, you can uh, tell each other you love each other. It's just, so you kind of get this like hype, these hyped meetings that are just a lot of clapping, a lot of chanting. Uh, you're smiling a lot. You're hugging each other. Uh, so you're bonding with the group. And uh, and then you're just you're in classes all day. Yeah, yeah. And um, they keep you busy. You're not. Doesn't sound like you're bored. No, we were never bored. Yeah, no. Well, I mean, our minds could be bored, but not at not at the camps. So a lot of us left the camps uh, really dedicated to doing a good job, to being adults now. Now that we were twelve, uh, you know, just giving our lives to the cult. And now at this point in time, sorry, sorry to interrupt. At this point in time, you you believe in all this, right? I mean, it would make perfect sense that. Yeah, You're yeah. Part of the program you grew up. This is this is the the world. So, yeah. Because I, I, I definitely want to know how your mind, you know, what you're thinking and feeling as you go. Because we're we're living vicariously through you. Yeah, yeah. So I was pretty much a believer. Um, I I kind of like always rubbed a little like the the structure and the control rubbed against me a little bit. Um, <laughs> but overall, I believed and um. More importantly, I think I believe that the outside world was bad. And mm. because we were always running from the police, the police would chase us. You know, a lot of times we were, you know, in countries illegally or doing things we shouldn't have been proselytizing on the street when it was illegal. So we would see the police chasing us uh, since we were out on the streets begging for money. People would spit on us or molest us or, you know, we were just we were kind of in a bad situation, you know? So I was like, yeah, maybe the outside world is not that great. Maybe we can't survive out there. Um, it was, I mean, I was just so indoctrinated that there wasn't a lot of time to think of, do I really question this or not? Um, but what happens to a lot of people, you don't have competing material either. So, I mean, I don't blame no. you. It's not like you can just go pick up a book on, you know, hey, Robert Lipton's book's over here. Go and well, read no. it. No, it, not yeah. available. Yeah, so. that's that's <laughs> the milieu of control. And that's why that tactic works so good. And I think it's very clever of him that he made it be the first one. Because if all your information is controlled, uh, they have a lot of power. And when I say no, information no is controlled, I mean no newspapers, no TV, no mm -hmm. books. No conversations with outsiders that are not uh, scripted, that there is not a witness standing there with you. And then afterwards, you're going to go back and you're going to, um, what do they call in the military when they debrief? Debrief. You're going to go back and you're going to debrief. And if you were too and curious. Debrief. And whoever's with you is going to be debriefed too. So you better mm -hmm. be forthright because somebody's going to snitch. Yeah. Yeah. Snitch. yeah. So everything is controlled. And so there's, you're kind of just in survival mode all the time with no information. And I say no information, but I was one of those where I was like, if I walked by a television, I was going to like 
laser it into it. Like what's going on on that TV? It's moving. What are they talking about? You know, I would rip magazines that I would find places, rip out a page, go to a bathroom and read it and then flush it down the toilet. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I was very naughty. I was very naughty. <laughs> no, no, I mean, that, that's, that's fascinating. Yeah, but, yeah. At one point I got a, um, a Walkman and this was in the early 90s. I got a Walkman and uh, we had cult music we could listen to. We weren't allowed to listen to any outside music, Christian, anything, classical all of it was evil, uh, but it had a radio on it. And so like I had a little piece of tape that I kind of put over it to hide the radio part and I would sneak and listen to the radio. For some reason it was Kenny G and uh, I was like, wow, this is some sexy stuff. Uh, I think, I don't know, I must've been around like 17 or something, uh, but I was like, ooh, what is this? So that was just, I was always sneaking and doing stuff. Uh, but if you got caught, um, the ramifications were huge. So, but that kind of just shows you how humans are very curious and it's hard to suppress that. Oh, for sure. I mean, and you know, you can't look every minute all the time, but I, I think of, we're not that far apart in age. And Sadly, when we lived in a time where you could be more independent and we didn't have as many helicopter parents, but at the same time, information can be suppressed a whole lot more than it can now. Yes. It, there's a lot more out there. And yeah, it, it, I think harder and harder and harder to, to hide some of the stuff. And that's why yeah. you see many people leaving um, large name organizations, aka Scientology, et cetera, yes. because it's hard to hide from the internet. It's hard to hide from. Right. Yeah. I, I believe that that was kind of one of the downfalls of the children of God uh, in the form that it was uh, when eventually the world started catching on to the abuse. And while uh, the authorities for some reason did not think that the doctrine was enough, they wanted to walk into one of our communes and find children hanging from their feet with bruises all over them. Uh, well, we trained too good for that. You know, they weren't going to find right. that. Uh, even the children were trained for these scenarios. That's hard. That's hard, though, because you do have freedom of religion, like here in the States. And proving, having the, you know, justification, you have to have probable cause to get in and people aren't talking. And it, uh, in general, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to agree with you because I'm, I'm all about freedom. I'm, you know, I'm borderline libertarian. I'm like, yeah, I want freedom of speech. However, when the doctrine itself right. is saying abuse your children, spank them until they can no longer cry because crying is a manipulation. Do you know how much you have to spank a child before they stop crying? Like. Well, until they get this, <laughs> the, the break and become sociopathic a while, a while, then over time, then, then they, yeah. <laughs> Well, and I just mean physically in that moment. Sure. They're they're probably unconscious. You know, so these are things that Father David said to do, you know, and we're not even going to go into some of the more horrific stuff. So these were written documents. These were things that the cult was putting out. This was our doctrine. Then you have hundreds of people leaving saying this is real. This happened. And we're saying this is not enough. Now, some of it is because it's not really there's not a precedent for this. Um, you know, we're used to having a certain kind of evidence like photographs 
and we don't have that. But I, what do you do when when they're preaching this? I'm surprised they didn't have an undercover. You know, I mean, I, to me, that um, would be a a good candidate to have an undercover agent or two. But then you were all over the world too, and that factored in, right? Yeah. Like you forget mm-hmm, to tell us mm-hmm. where where you were when you were growing up. Yeah. So um, I was in. Um, it's funny, actually. My earliest member uh, memory was being in Jamaica, and uh, we actually got kicked out of Jamaica because the Jamaican government uh, they came to our commune, they raided it, and they said, "You're CIA. You're providing guns to uh, to our our people." And siding with the rebellion, you need to leave. And it's so funny because I've looked back at that time. The CIA actually was doing that during that time. I'm wondering, you know, when you just said that, though, I kind of. Is it possible that that uh, David Burke may have? No, I'm, I'm just asking because the CIA had some very so, strange bedfellows, if yes. you will. And they protected some people unaccountably. Well, that's I think that's a really good question. Uh, And the fact that no matter what David Berg did, he never got in trouble. I'm like, "Mm, you can't follow the money. You can't follow, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands. Who knows how much money you can't follow the money. It's kind of kind of interesting. But uh, yeah, yeah, I I think that that it's interesting. But either way. uh, So I was in Jamaica, uh, Puerto Rico, Mexico, Canada, Hawaii, Guam, uh, Japan, Korea, the Philippines, Guam, Saipan. Yeah. And within those places, we moved constantly. We were constantly on the run. Uh, You were personally moved all the time. We actually were a very secretive group. We had a beautiful front facing group. Like our storefront was immaculate. Uh, we were taught to smile, to sing. We did mock court cases. We trained on how to speak to outsiders. We were trained and taught that the outside world thought that we were abused. And so mm. here's what you say. Here's what you do. Um, you know, so we were taught this thing. It was called deceivers yet true. So it's okay to lie to outsiders. It's not okay to mm. lie to the group, but you have to lie to outsiders because they are the enemy. We call them systemites, just like, you know, other people call them subversives or whatever. Our term was systemites and a systemite was, you know, an enemy. So it's there, okay to a, lie to them. Formula. There, there really is a formula. There is. <laughs> yes. I know. You have to wonder if they all like studied together and then got together and like, uh, you know, kind of like swap stories. But we don't know, you know. There, you know, cults, there's a hierarchy and most of mm-hmm. us are on the bottom. And so the very top, you don't really know what's going on. And uh, most of us never saw David Berg. We didn't know what he looked like until the day that he died. So yeah. even if his picture was out in the world, we didn't know because we weren't allowed to see it. Um, growing up, uh, they had they they did cartoons to show us what he was. And uh, I'm going to show you, I'm going to show you one of them. Yeah. So this is, here he is. Wow. He's a, look, look at those muscles. You know, he's cool. He's a a cool hipster. You know, he's, he's a cool guy. He's not like those systemites. Well, when I finally saw him when he died, 
I was like, oh, so <laughs> underwhelmed. I was like, he was scrawny and old and just, he, he wasn't rolling up his sleeves looking all hunky. You know, we just, we were, <laughs> we, <laughs> yeah. It was, it was a, the illusion. Within a couple of years, you're like, I'm out of here. Yeah. And all the, and all the women were like wanting to have sex with him and fantasizing about it. And like, Oh, I had a dream last night. I had sex with, they called him grandpa or father. And I'm like, well, that's creepy. Uh, you There's know, videos out there that that was not only occurring, that was encouraged and videos oh, yes. were set from it. And, uh, I'll say consensual ish. I mean, there's mind control involved, so it's hard to say consensual, but it was, it, it was very, very weird having like a husband and wife or, or a couple, yeah. well, I guess, because nobody's really married to anybody. You, know, you sort of are, but you're not, it's all very, very confusing. Yeah. When, so when look yeah, it is. And, and so the videos that you see are also propaganda. You know, that was David Berg said, have your beautiful women send me stuff. And of course, they all put on a good face. And there were some people that were dedicated and loved it. Most people I saw in the cult didn't love it. They were doing stuff because they felt they had to. And you could tell women would get in trouble and get publicly shamed because they didn't want to participate in the sexual sharing. And they were just we would all get together and shame them, you know, as a group until they did what the leaders wanted. So you had a lot of people not doing that because they liked it and they wanted it. Most people did not join for sexual reasons. They joined to uh, fulfill this great purpose of saving the world and uh, getting away from American capitalism and you know all these lofty things. They didn't join mm. for those reasons. Um, so that's yeah, those- a, that, that, that's a really good point. And- I wanted to go into it with you as well, because I, I've had like Ian Haworth on and um, Rick Allen Ross. And yeah. you just said, yeah. because they have all these lofty things and anti-capitalism stuff, that one of the primary recruiting grounds is, quote, do-gooders or people yes. who really want to change mm -hmm. the world. Yeah. And do you want to go into that a little bit? I do. Um, so first of all, when you and it's interesting, because even as kids, we were trained to look for this. Um, there's not one type of person that joins a cult when it comes to career or education. Uh, it's not a bunch of drug addicts. There's doctors, lawyers, hippies, ballerinas, whatever, all kinds. The thing that does seem to be in common is that they were in a place in their life where their purpose was what I call weak. They had weak purpose. Uh, meaning they were switching jobs, getting divorced, broke up with the girlfriend, lonely, not sure about going to college, whatever their life purpose or the thing that they were excited about has kind of like faded. Yeah. So they're in a liminal space in their life. And um, so the cult comes along and it really speaks to somebody's narcissism. You know, um, I don't know if you've heard of it, but it's like... Uh, it's like, it's like charity narcissism, you know, like, oh, I'm gonna, I want to just save the world. And you, you have sure. these ideas in your head and somebody comes along and says, here's an easy way to do it. You don't have to work really hard. You just become part of this group. And by mm -hmm. default, without becoming doctors, uh, doctors without borders, you know, you can just become part of this group where we love you and we hug you 
and automatically, bam, you are saving the world. And uh, I think if you're kind of like needing a goal and you're needing a purpose in your life, like that's so tantalizing. Um, I do kind of feel like it, we still need to study more, but I think you probably do have to be a little bit of a flexible thinker to be talked into this, but a lot of people are, that's not a bad thing. Uh, it just, if it's lined up at the perfect time in your life where you're in flux, you're in a liminal space, you're open to new ideas, you're dissatisfied with your life, your parents, your family, whatever. And then you're offered this, uh, I call it the deus ex machina solution, which is from Greek theater, where they would they would swoop in at the end of a story. And it didn't make any sense, but this God would swoop in from the machine. It means God from the machine would swoop in and end the story fantastically without any reason. And everybody's like, yay, yay. You know, and I, I, I want to say it was maybe Socrates was like, oh, this is lazy storytelling. So basically it's, you know, we watch movies where there's a lazy ending, like bam, all of a sudden magic happens. So people who are like, I guess a little more open-minded, they can be like, oh, I, I can, I can get a hold of that. I can, I can see that. I can see that if I join this cult, bam, magic is going to happen. And one of the reasons that I think that in order to be duped by a church, not a church, a cult, I'm sorry, uh, you do have to be a bit open-minded because if you look at the second generation, like all the kids my age, we almost all abandoned it and left and did not, you know, once we hit like our teenage years, all of a sudden we weren't buying it anymore. So how is that possible when we were given so little of the outside world, so little information, nothing but this thought reform? To me, it says there has to be something in you that accepts the thought reform if you are fighting against the thought reform, ultimately it's not going to work. So I think there's a little bit of willpower that we kind of haven't looked into yet. And I'd love to see some studies about that, but there's thousands of us that all, when we hit our teenage years, we were like, I'm calling bullshit on this. Mm. And how is that possible when our parents weren't and they had lived in the outside world? That's a, um, a fascinating point now, but while you were calling bullshit on it you were also recruiting people oh yeah yeah because so, you're calling there has bull to be a cognitive dissonance in this yes i don't know i don't know uh i think i might push back on that a little bit so you're calling bullshit i remember being a teenager and starting to call bullshit on some of the fanciful doctrine like i believed and was told i was going to be a superhero I was going to shoot fire out of my hands. I was going to, uh, all I had to do was be a prostitute for the cult. But in the end times, I was going to have superpowers. I could fly. I could do all these things. And at first I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. I'm like so powerful. And it's, it's you know, I'm kind of looking at my hands and like, oh, is, there, is there any, is it hot? Is it hot? Is it coming? And, you know, the older I got, the more I was like, yeah, I don't, I don't know about this just didn't seem it was too fanciful. However, the stuff I didn't uh, call bullshit on was the outside world. I didn't see how I could navigate living outside the cult. I didn't 
the only people that were ever allowed in our compounds from the outside world were Johns. So I don't know if you know what a John is. Of course I know what it is. Yes. <laughs> Some people don't. <laughs> so the yes. only people I ever saw coming into our environment that were allowed in our homes was a John. And the Johns were nice. They were always, I loved when a John came, they would bring food, snacks, everybody kind of smiled and was like happy. And, That's and they sometimes wow. cracked jokes or sang songs that I hadn't heard. So to me, it was like, Ooh, kind of cool. But other than that, there was no close relationships with outsiders, with grandparents. It was like, so I, I bought because I saw proof or because I didn't see proof. I don't know. I just, I bought that we had to stick together and I couldn't leave. And that stayed with me. Um, it stayed with me, you know, and to this day, I still sometimes feel like an outsider. I feel like a foreigner and I listen to other people's stories of their childhood and what they've experienced and just how they look at things. And I'm not on the same place as them. I don't understand. You know, I just, I, I I, I'm sorry. You said something that's pretty um, striking essentially that the Johns brought joy while you were technically all being abused. Mm -hmm. This place is so dark that the people who were essentially being prostituted out got joy from the customers who were doing it. Is Did oh, I hear that correctly? Yes. Oh, absolutely. There's no... Oh, I just said absolutely. <laughs> Sorry, Scott. Um, yeah. Um, you know, think about you. So we weren't allowed to go out and, and oh, no, I was talking about the behavior panel. They always say, like, if you say, yeah, yeah. If you talk, if you say uh, absolutely. Um, but our life was so structured. And the only joy that was allowed was joy in the Lord and joy at doing your service and what you, what you had to do. There was... Um, Sugar was not allowed. No, uh, you didn't watch TV. You weren't allowed to do competitive sports. Uh, you weren't allowed to choose what you were. We were not allowed to buy food. So everything that came into our home had to be donated. We, If we couldn't get enough food donated, we had to go into the garbage cans and go look for food. So when a John brought uh, food that was like, you know, pizzas or whatever, you were like, wow, yay. You know, and the, and the John may not have even known that the woman was married. You know, I, I, who knows what they thought or what they were told. You know, I don't know that they even like. Did marriage really even matter there though? From what I understand, well, there was so much swapping and swinging and. Whatever. So, tra right. Traditional marriage was not allowed. Uh, romance was not allowed. I personally never witnessed a single wedding Ever. And if you got married to somebody, that was actually really hard because if you if you didn't agree, then they would take that partner away from you. And so they'd get sent to and they would test you, too. So they would take them away. So personal connections were very discouraged. Uh, it was a lot of arranged marriages. Um, if you were in love, you kind of had to, like, keep it on the down low. You didn't make a big deal about it. And then there was a schedule for sexual sharing. And so you would get to a commune and every night, you know, you're with your husband this night and then you're with 
Uncle John and with blah, 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 blah. And a lot of people didn't like it. This was not fun. This was not like a bunch of swingers hanging out, having a good time. You would see one or two people having a great time. And then you'd see other people crying in their in their bedrooms. You'd see, you know, husbands just like, you know, and I would watch this and see like, wow, some adults love this and some hate it. You know, but I was really thankful when I started seeing adults like paying enough attention to, oh, some adults don't like this, just like me. And I was like, okay, because up until that point, I thought, okay, I'm kind of a weirdo here. I'm not really into this. What's going on? I'm not loving it. And then I see adults and I overhear and I see women getting in trouble for not sharing. And I'm like, oh, okay. You know, the thing that we forget, like while us kids in the cult, we had it the worst and especially us older ones. Uh, Some of the younger ones never experienced uh, anything more than the thought reform, you know, than the extreme control and lack of education. But they didn't experience all the forms of abuse that we experienced. But um, kind of forgot where I was going with that. Um, I guess. Oh, I know where I was going with that. Our parents and the adults in this cult, they were duped. So like, you know, about uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So we, we've got our pyramid, you know, I agree. and <laughs> I was so happy when I found them because man, like they're talking my language. So exciting. <laughs> I, I want to talk about that later. Um, but so a cult offers you the bottom, right? Like right mm-hmm. off the bat, you're going to have your basic needs. You're going to have food and shelter. So you come into our group, you got that part and that's solid. Well, everything else you're duped into believing that you're getting that you're getting your esteem and your love and your uh, belonging. And then that self-actualization, you're, you're sold this. We're giving you all of this. And it is the biggest con ever, but that's what our parents were sold. And because of all the thought reform and, uh, you know, these eight things that they were doing to convince them that they were just falling for the con over and over again. You have belonging, you have love, mm-hmm. and uh, it's just a sick and twisted version of all of that. It's like living in the upside down world. Have you ever read up on hazing? Uh, no, but I do know of it. I kind of you know, hearing about this and thinking about it uh, over the weekend, it came into my mind that there's a hazing element to this. Oh, absolutely. And yes, by yes. that, what I mean is that there's a reason that fraternities haze mm-hmm. and sororities. And this goes back to there are tribes in Africa who, who do this. And it literally, the hazing mechanism is something bad, uncomfortable, yeah. whatever you want that, that you go through, but then everyone else around you goes through it. So you actually are bonding mm-hmm. through this abuse. And I, I'm throwing it out yeah. there because I know you're very deep and wanting to read on it, but I, I'd be interested if you think it all over, if, if the hazing angle may actually help enforce some of this, because like the same way all these fraternity brothers or brothers for life, or I was no. in the army and a lot of people in the military, you know, they're forever together because they went mm-hmm. through basic together. They went through this together. They went through that together. Is there a little bit of that with you? Yes, absolutely. And uh, this is one of the reasons I like you, you know, you're, 
I don't, I don't know what you call it. Like, that's good. The fact that you got that. Uh, I'm going to raise you one even. If you've ever been in the dating world, they tell you one of the ways that you can bond with a date or a partner is by doing activities that are dangerous, that are outside of your mm. comfort zone. Going on a roller coaster, uh, going bungee cord jumping. If you do that with somebody, you can bond in a way that you wouldn't if you were having coffee. And so that goes all the way down to just a date. So you know if the stakes are even higher, you know, and and I've watched these, you know, let's call it a hazing session where somebody is rebellious and they don't want to do whatever the cult wants them to do. We go down in the main living room. We all surround them. They kneel on the floor. We put our hands on them. We do our chanting. We're all putting pressure on them physically. We are rebuking evil spirits. We're rebuking their pride. We're yelling. It's intense. People are sweating. When that person breaks and they start crying and they beg for forgiveness from God, David Berg, whoever, uh, then guess what happens after that? We grab that person. We hug them. We're like, Auntie Sharon's back. You know, we're hugging her. We're all kissing her. We're, we're all happy it's over. She's going to be yielded. She's going to go up to the leader's room that night. He's happy. And we're happy it's over. And we've all hugged her. We've all affirmed, like, it's over now. You've repented. Like, it's intense. It's very intense. It's, it's sick and twisted, but it's intense. Wow. And... Here's the, here's the messed up thing is I can actually see you getting um, the dopamine hit out of it mm-hmm. and, you know, feeling the genuine, you know, somebody wrote trauma bonding, which is a, probably a great term for that. Yeah. Yeah, that um, is. I have to know, and I know I'm jumping around by doing this, but okay, you've left. I know you have children. I think you are married. This has got to play hell with any kind of what would be seen as a normalized, because nobody's normal, mm-hmm. but we'll just yeah. say uh, neurotypical or, you know, common, commonly held relationship. How has this been for you for relationships? It has to be kind of. Yeah. Different. Well, uh, romantic relationships, though, that is, I am divorced. <laughs> uh, I don't think because of that problem, we were married for 23 years, but um. But, you know, no, I do carry, um, uh, I don't know what you want to call it, like scars. But um, one thing, I, I really appreciate exposure therapy, um, maybe because of those dopamine hits and throwing myself out in, in difficult positions. But um, really, for me, speaking about it, um, I think one of the first things for me really was like having a family and and having children. Uh, I never wanted to have children. I never wanted babies. I, the idea was just horrific to me. I I just, you know, and then of course I had my first two in the cult and um, I looked at my first baby and I I looked down at her. She was a couple days old and I realized like, she's, it kind of just like dawned on me. She's a person and I could treat her like a person And this was a very rebellious thought, you know, but I was like, I could like, she's in my hands. 
and um, who makes me want to cry. <laughs> um, Did they separate you? No, no. Um, they tried to separate me from my husband and they told him that they were going to take care of the baby, but he said no. Um, and, and by that time in the cult, they had calmed down a little bit on some of that stuff. Um, but I just, I realized like that I had a choice and just seeing her and seeing how little she was and realizing like, okay, I have a choice. She's a person. And, um, so then basically everything that I thought I needed or didn't have, I wanted to give my kids. And so I just kind of, it, it was a very healing experience for me was just, um, I mean, I'm basically like a big kid. So I'm like, yeah, let's have a mud fight in the yard. You know, let's bake chocolate chip cookies. Everything that I never got to do, I got to do with my kids. So awesome. that was just amazing. Um, so you look vicariously through your kids. So oh, absolutely. That you kind of join them in childhood after yes. a fashion. Yes. And I still do. I still, I'm very young spirited when it comes to just life. And um, I, you know, I, I go to therapy, you know, there's definitely, uh, there's always going to be healing to be done. And, um, but I, I think that's okay. I, I haven't met or found anybody who doesn't have issues that they have to work through. So my goal is not perfection. That was kind of the Colts goal. I, mm. You know, I don't want to beat myself up. I, I love life. I'm enjoying it. Uh, so I'm good. And uh, yeah, you know, there's dating is, is difficult and weird for me. You know, uh, telling people what I want is hard. Like it's hard to even admit what I want. So it's very uh, difficult. You know, I'll circle the block sometimes when I'm like, oh, I need to go eat out and I'll just circle the block. I don't, I can't make the decision of where I want to eat and what I want. Like, it's just really mm -hmm. tough. Um, you know, things like walking outside of my front door. I remember the first time I walked out of the front door where I didn't have to ask anybody permission and where I got to go by myself. And that was when I got out of the cult. My husband had taken the children out to the grocery store and I was home alone. And I walked to the front door and I opened the door and I walked out and I got in the car. I was, I was 21 I'd never driven a car, but my husband had been teaching me over the past couple of weeks. He's like, you have to drive. You know, that's what we do out here. And I got in the car and I started like, outside. I'm sorry. He was an outsider then. Yeah. So he was, um, he was looking at joining. So he was, they, he was going through the recruitment process while I was, uh, while we met. And once he was through the recruitment process, he was like, yeah, this is not for me. But we met and fell in love. And then he spent two years trying to get me out. That's and I kept telling him, like, we cannot survive out there. We can't leave. And he kept like he couldn't even comprehend what I was saying. He's like, yes, we can. What are you talking about? I'm like, no, we can't leave. And if we do leave, they will not let us back. And he's like, so it just we and we never really quite like I don't think he ever got it because he's very independent. Um, but yeah, so I was driving down the road and I started laughing like a crazy person. I, I had turned the radio on. Some stupid American uh, rock and roll song was playing and I'm driving and I was, I was out in White Castle and the sugar cane was super high and I was just driving down this little country road and there was dirt, you know, coming up off of the road and I'm driving and I, I felt like such a badass. 
And I look down, I look down at the dashboard to check, you know, how fast am I going? I was going like 20 miles an hour. And I was like, okay, well, (laughs) not a badass. But then I was like, I had this weird urge to drive and to keep driving. Like for a few seconds, I was like, I could literally keep going and never stop and never come back. I could just keep going. And And after you or anything like that, or they just weren't that way. Well, we were out of the cult at that time. This was this was me out of the cult. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, okay. this so was how after did you break free. I mean, I was twenty one. I was twenty one. How did we? Uh, so basically, what happens is they don't physically keep you once you're eighteen. Oh, okay. So before you're eighteen, they will tie you up, lock you up. Uh, they'll do all kinds of horrific stuff to you to keep you in before the founder died. Now, after the founder died, a lot of that stuff changed. But I had watched so many teenagers run away only to be returned by the police, to be locked away, uh, to be put in solitary confinement for six months and beaten. I was like, unless I knew that I could survive, I was never going to leave. I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to go through that. I knew I couldn't survive outside. Uh, So, yeah. So when he convinced me to leave, um, we went and stayed with his parents. And they were uh, normal. They had family dinners together and they all argued. Uh, they're one of those uh, very, they, they very, they're very loud and they say whatever they want, whenever they want. And they kind of like argue and sort of yell at each other and then break out laughing. And mm, to me, okay. it was chaos and it was scary, but I was fascinated. I was like, what is happening here? What is going on? I couldn't tell if they were like, I mean, is somebody going to die? You know, and then they would start laughing. And I was like, okay, I don't, you know, (laughs) but I loved it. I was like, this is, this is crazy. And I kind of sat on the outskirts and, you know, it took me a long, long time. It wasn't until I was 30 years old that I was able to admit in my own head, in a complete sentence that I grew up abused. I was 30 years old and I was sitting on the front porch of my house and I was watching my four children. They were playing in the mud and they were just complete little mud monsters. Every inch of them was covered in mud and they were slopping the mud at each other in their swimsuits. And I was laughing and I was watching them and I I thought, you know, this is awesome. I never could have done this when I was a kid. And then I was like, what would have happened? Oh my God. I, wow. I grew up abused to like what they were doing was so horrific in the cult that would never be allowed ever. So, mm. uh, I, that was the first time I admitted it and it's been a long, long recovery. Everybody thinks, Oh, you get out of a cult and you're free. No. And it's not like that. It takes a long time. Why am I just speaking out now? It takes a long time. You know, yeah, you, you, I had you, a Scientology you, person and yeah, it took him years of therapy and he's, mm-hmm. he's doing a podcast series about it himself or yeah, YouTube. good. So that yeah. definitely helps. And actually on that note, um, Gavin Stone, who's a, a regular here is asking a legitimate question. Would you be willing to come back for, uh, another episode with more of a Q and a from the audience as well, because obviously I've dominated the time. Uh. <laughs> and not let them get any questions in. And I know they have a lot of questions for you. 
Uh, yeah, yeah, I, w- I would be willing to uh, answer some questions. Yeah. So yeah. there's uh, there's a lot more story to tell. Um, we're only halfway okay. through. <laughs> <laughs> which which is great. I I mean, I definitely want to hear it. And I don't I don't want to rush it. So yeah. I'm, so one. Yeah. Sorry. I, I, no, I, I get excited and I interrupt. Um, one thing I do want to talk about before I leave, um, I think it's something that's applicable to everybody that uh, either goes through trauma or is just living their life and trying to live their best life. But it's one of the things that has helped me the most. And it's understanding the principle of locus of control. And oh, yeah. so, you know, psychologists have found that like the the more your locus of control, locus means like where, like, mm-hmm. you know, like a location where your control is. So the, the more your control is within, the healthy you are. The more you are controlled by the outside, the, the more you struggle. So what that means is like learning how to take responsibility for yourself, learning that no matter what happens to you, you have some choices. Like you can mm-hmm. be victimized. You know, let's say you're walking down an alley and you get mugged. You know, you are you, something terrible happened to you. Uh, you can say, okay, how can I make sure this doesn't happen again? I'm going to go take a jujitsu class, you know, or I'm going to carry some pepper spray. I'm going to not walk down that alley again. You have control of your life. And that's one of the things that when you're, when bad things happen to you, if you can kind of like center yourself and go, okay, how can I control this? What, what is the outcome from this that I want? As opposed to the world is bad. People are mean. They're going to hurt me. I can't protect myself. Um, That may be, that may be true in that moment and bad things will happen to us, but we can control to a certain extent, the outcomes of these things. And so that's something that we can, I still try to talk to my kids about, uh, to myself. I have to constantly say, you, you know, when something bad happens, I have control of what I'm going to do with this. Right. How you react. You you determine how you're reacting to it, whether you're a victim, yeah. not a victim. And and no, that's if you're going to have one thing out there, that's not a bad one. Yeah. I mean, if well. you say, oh, I'm going to focus. <laughs> well, I mean, just some, sometimes you can only seize on to one thing. And that's a really good one to seize on to because you can only control yourself and how you react to something. You can never control anybody else or anything around no. you. So by doing that, you're automatically shifting it and yeah. having some degree of control, especially with your background yeah. where you had no control. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing is very beneficial. Uh, right. Right. But I remember one of the things I think that kept me sane is I remember watching horrific things happen and horrific things happening to me. And I remember mm-hmm. thinking in that moment, like, you know, I mean, there's nothing you can do. And I remember telling myself, I'm going to remember this. And I'm going to use this for something. And I didn't know what. I didn't know why it was important that I remembered, but I just grabbed onto, I'm going to do something with this. And yeah, like what, 30 years later or 20 years later, I I am. Doesn't matter. I am not their dirty little secret anymore. I am no longer going to participate by keeping these secrets, by keeping what they did silent. And so that's, kind of like locus of control. It's, you can't, sometimes you can't help being a victim, but you can help whether you stay in that position and what you do with it. Wow. That's that's amazing. And 
I know everybody's going to be extremely annoyed, but we're going to push off the behavior panel part. This is called a tea <laughs> for neck bone because there's a lot of meat here. And I just, I want, I want to give it some time to breathe. I want to let everybody watch this. Hopefully comment below. And if you don't mind, please look, look at the comments too. And ask questions, ask things of us. And yes, it is a horrible, salacious organization. There's a lot of extremely disturbing things we could discuss, but we're not deliberately because it's just pointless. I did put a link in the description where there's a whole archive of all kinds of disgusting, horrible material that you can find out about the the uh, cult if you want to go as deep as you want. Forewarning is disgusting, disturbing information. You know, don't do it with your kids and all that. It it's quite troubling. But um, on that, I love this being a a final message for this one. The locus of control is is tremendous, and thank you very much. Thank you, Eric. Thanks for giving me a platform to speak, and I love this long form. So, right. thanks. We'll be doing it soon. Thanks so much for listening. And if you would like even more content and community, please consider joining my locals at unstructured.locals.com. And you can always find out more about me and my shows and everything I do at erichunley.com. See you next time.